0: you have your Bibles this morning, you turn with me to Psalm 45. Continue in the Psalms together this summer. Psalm 45 is where we find our self today. And as we look at Psalm 45 together, it's a royal wedding psalm. It's very poetic. It's a very beautiful written psalm. I really wanted to do some readings this morning in Song of Solomon. thought that might creep people out a little bit who aren't comfortable with that, but really the Song of Solomon goes well uh, with what we're going to look at this morning in, in this psalm together, Together, because this psalm uh, is written concerning the king marrying a foreign bride, so not not even a bride of the people, but a but a foreign bride and the psalmist here you're going to see is going to talk about the greatness of the king and and the greatness of the of the queen and some people say uh, that this psalm was written when King Solomon married his Egyptian bride and I think this could be true I wouldn't stake everything on it I guess but it is very plausible uh, that this could be the case but everybody agrees even the rabbis agree and all agree that this psalm is a messianic psalm. But it's a psalm that when we read it, our minds should go to Christ. It needs to go to Jesus. And so as we're reading about the king, the king here being talked about is, is the Messiah, the long-waited after king in the line of David. And that Christ fulfills that role. And as we read about the bride, what we need to be thinking about is the church. Because the church is called the bride of of Christ, and we long to be with our bridegroom again. but before we dive too much into the psalm, I do want to remind us of something that is very important, and it's found in second Samuel chapter seven, so you can keep your thumb there in psalms forty five but you could flip back some pages to Second Samuel if you'd like to follow along, but would probably be on the screen as well because we do need to look at this and be reminded of this here that the covenant that God made With David. This is a foundational covenant. It's a very important part of Scripture for us to understand what's going on in the Old Testament and then what's happening there in the New Testament with Christ. We need to have a good grasp on this. So follow along with me. I want to read uh, from verse 8 to verse 17. It says, Now therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture. From following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went, and have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make for you a great name like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel, and will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly. From the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel, And I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you. You who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. In accordance with all these words and in accordance with all this vision, Nathan spoke to David. So we have God making this covenant with David, promising that his throne will last forever. And we can even see within this covenant that King Solomon would come in, and he would reign after David, and he would build a house uh, for God. You might remember that. And so he even fulfills some of this. But the problem is Solomon just, just falls short because his throne isn't established forever because Solomon dies. And so the people would long and wait for this king who would reign forever and ever. And Psalm 45 is one that they would go to in looking forward to this king. And that's the poem that we have here, right? The, the writer of this has is, is got his uh, language here, which is very beautiful. And again, very poetic, which honestly, I don't do the best with, with poems. I'm, I'm not the best uh, touchy-feely type of guy. And as we read this, you're going to see it's very touchy-feely, all right? And it's very, it's very beautiful, and as we, we look at verse 1, the, you're going to see this right away from the writer in his introduction of, of how their heart is overflowing with what's happening with this wedding, with their king and this bride. And as we get to verses 2 through 9, uh, we see the writer talk about the groom, to talk about the king. Verses 10 through 15, he then shifts his focus to the bride. And then at the end there, in verses 16 through 17, uh, another praise of, the, of how the king is eternal how his throne is going to last forever. So let us look at that this morning. I want to read Psalm 45. I ask you to just follow along with me. It says, My heart overflows with a pleasing theme. I address my verses to the king. My tongue is like the pen of a ready scribe. You are the most handsome of the sons of men. Grace is poured upon your lips. Therefore, God has blessed you forever. Gird your sword on your thigh, O mighty one, in your splendor and majesty. In your majesty, ride out victoriously for the cause of truth and meekness and righteousness. Let your right hand teach you awesome deeds. Your arrows are sharp. and the heart of the king's enemies, the peoples fall under you. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of your kingdom is a scepter of uprightness. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore... God, your God, has anointed you. With the oil of gladness beyond your companions, your robes are all fragrant with myrrh and aloes and cassia. From ivory palaces, stringed instruments make you glad. Daughters of kings are among your ladies of honor. At your right hand stands the queen in gold of Ophir. Hear, O daughter, and consider and incline your ear. Forget your people and your father's house and the king will desire your beauty. Since he is your Lord, bow to him. The people of Tyre will seek your favor with gifts, the richest of the people. All glorious is the princess in her chamber with robes interwoven with gold. In many colored robes she is led to the king. With her virgin companions following behind her, with joy and gladness they are led along as they enter the palace of the king. In place of your fathers shall be your sons. You will make them princes in all the earth. I will cause your name to be remembered in all generations. Therefore, nations will praise you forever and ever. I'm sure I don't do justice in reading this of how beautiful it is, but I hope that you see and get a glimpse of the beauty of this psalm. And we noticed right away in the introduction that this psalm is different because the psalmist kind of introduced himself, even though we don't have a name here. But writes and says, My heart overflows with a pleasing theme. I address my verses to the king. My tongue is like the pen of a ready scribe. This unusual intro here, but the author is just sharing his heart. Of just showing how his heart is overflowing with the joy of what is taking place. The joy of being a part of this kingdom. And he gets to write about his king. And now his king is marrying this, this bride. And he gets to write about this bride. And the joys that this bride is going to be a part of this kingdom now. And so... The author just starts to, to flow as he, as he writes. And he starts off in verses 2 through 9, speaking of the royal groom. And in verses 2 through 5, we see the power of this king, the great power that this king has. I mean, he mentions right away in verse 2, you are the most handsome of all the sons of men. And so there's a beauty there with the king that seems to be unmatched. But it doesn't just end in physical beauty, which a lot of times that is the case. Even today, when we might vote in politicians or whatever, we kind of want them to look like one. There's just something about that. We might not say that, but it is there, I think, in our psyche. There is this physical beauty here with this king, but it doesn't end with the physical beauty of the king because the author continues and talks about the grace that's poured out on the lips of the king and how the king is blessed forever. And so you have this picture of this king that looks the part, but also is full of of grace. And you continue on. I mean, in verses 3 through 5, we see the victory of this king, that this king is a warrior, that this king is battle-tested, that when this king shoots its arrow, where does it hit? Exactly where it was supposed to. And it strikes deep. And so you see uh, the warrior side of this king leading the nation into battle and, and winning. And so we're having this picture of this king, really, that is... That is perfect. And then it continues on. If that isn't enough. The king is also a righteous king. Look at verse 4. In your majesty. Ride out victoriously. Why? For the cause of truth. In meekness. In righteousness. Now what nation or what kingdom do you know. That this is their goal. We ride out in righteousness. We ride out. In meekness. Is that what we want? Do we want a king that is meek? No. Too often we want a king that is mighty. We want a king that is boisterous. We want a king that knows he's the king and proves it and shows it. Yet, this king that's being talked about here looks like a king, is very gracious to his people, is a warrior king who rides out and conquers nations, but does it in perfection, righteousness, uprightness, and this is just qualities that make him such a great king, a king with compassion, a king where justice flows from him perfectly. If we're honest, I mean, these are the attributes that we so desire from a king, but yet when we look throughout time, again, we just can't really find that. When we look around us today, we might find people who are pretty good at the things that they do, but they're not perfect. I mean, they're just going to fall short. The writer here is writing of his king, who he sees these qualities in, and it's perfection. And so in verses 6 through 9, he starts to talk about the glory of this king. And it's interesting the way he starts this little section, because in verse 6, he equates the king to God. Your throne, O God is forever and ever. So he's talking about this king, and now, again, comparing this king as as if to God, and that's important for us. Claiming that his throne, the throne where his king sits, is actually the throne of God. Again, we see this in Israel, and we know the truths of this. But again, in verse 7, as we continue on, you have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God your God has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. So again, we see the perfect judge who loves righteousness. And because of this, it says God has anointed this king above all other kings, that God Himself has, has placed this king where he is supposed to be and, and anointed it. And it, it talks about the sweet smell of perfume and the, the sweet, the sweet aroma that just seems to exude from this king. And so again, this perfection with, again, I'm not a big poetry guy. I'm kind of getting sick of the king hearing about it. I don't know if you get that way. But it's like watching a movie and they're trying to portray this guy who's just perfect and everything. And you're like, this, this guy doesn't even exist. Why are we getting so excited about this? It's just a movie, obviously. But This writer is just pouring out this praise on this king. And to be honest, again, I said that this could be about King Solomon. And there are some connections here that I think we do need to notice. Because King David's son, Solomon, becomes king and he was held on high. And God, we believe, did establish his throne. God did give him this kingdom. We see that King Solomon was very wise. He was very wealthy. And he lived in relative peace. The nation lived in relative peace while he ruled as king. Yet as we look at all of these attributes, we know that King Solomon, just, he just falls short. His throne isn't established forever. He wasn't always filled with righteousness, if you know anything about Solomon. And if this is the person who he is marrying, the queen of Egypt, uh, that queen would soon lead him astray. And so we see sin in King Solomon's life, and we look today and we know that his throne isn't still going. No one on the throne who could say, well, yeah, Solomon's my great, 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 great grandfather. So it kind of leaves us, leaves us wondering, doesn't it? What can this psalm be about? If the Bible is true and inerrant, what's happening here? Has this been fulfilled? Will it ever be fulfilled? Well, the writer continues on now with the bride in verses 10 through 15. And in the first couple verses, uh, the writer gives great encouragement to the queen and notice he tells the queen to do a couple things. And the first thing that the queen is asked to do there in verse 10 might not be the best thing for us to hear. Hear, oh daughter, and consider and incline your ear. Forget your people in your father's house. Well, man, that's kind of harsh. Right? Uh, forget about all your family. Forget about everything you've grown to know and move on because you're moving on to the, queen, to the king here. And so obviously what we see is this writer is writing to a queen that is not from Israel because that wouldn't be written if the queen was from Israel. But is writing to a foreign queen and saying, listen, you need to reject the ways of your father in order to be the queen of Israel. You need to forget about the gods that you worshipped in foreign lands. You need to fall on your face before the true and the living God. And this actually would have been a normal custom. This would have been a very A very common custom in the day and age uh, when a a bride would be given over uh, to a king from a different land. This would be very, very normal. And it says actually that they need to bow down before the king. And so the queen here is encouraged to come to this foreign land, forget everything that she's ever known, and to come and to bow down before this king who is now her lord. But there's something interesting that's promised within this. Look at verse 11. Verse 11. And the king will desire your beauty. Now, I think this is an interesting turn in the things that we normally see of long ago with kings and queens. Because from what I know and from what I've, what I've studied about this time, kings would marry foreign princesses. But very rarely was it because of love. And very rarely was it because of even desire. The reason for these marriages were almost always political in nature. It was to see two kingdoms form some sort of a truce, right? And to, and to have trust now with each other or, or trade relations. Or it's one kingdom who's low, hoping that they can rise up to get on the level of, of this other kingdom. And so you would have a lot of marriages that were not full of love. Were not full of kindness. Were not full of desire. But instead, the psalmist is writing here to this queen. It says, forget your fathers, forget the gods of your fathers, forget those ways, come here, bow before your king, but know this, the king will desire you. There will be a desire in the king's heart for you. You are not some pawn in some political game. No, you have the king's heart. And the king loves you. So the writer then continues on in verses 13 through 15. and talks about the glories here of the queen. This foreign queen is accepted by the king and is accepted into the king's chamber. And the people are rejoicing over this, over this queen. And the beauty of the whole thing that is taking place, she's accepted and she's cherished by the people as their queen. Now remember, this is a foreign queen coming in. But the people of the nation are wrapping their arms around this queen and saying she is accepted. And in fact, she is my queen. We love her just like the king does. So this queen is no longer a foreigner. She's one of us. She's part of our nation. And we love her and we even praise her name. And in verse 15, with joy and gladness they are led along as they enter the palace of the king. Again, I think this stuff is hard for us as Americans. We fought against the king. We stake our claim in that, right? We, we love that we did that. And so this whole kingdom language is, is very difficult, I think, for us. We, we still have a very odd fascination, I think, at times with, with kings and queens and the stuff that happens in, in England and all of that. Maybe many of you watch that and you take interest in it. But just recently, the queen had something. I don't know, she was like uh, 60 or 70 years as queen or whatever, And they had huge parties. I mean, did you see it on TV? The the amount of money that nation had to spend. Why? To lift up the name of their queen. To show love for their queen. And it was interesting during that time, because there's a lot of pastors that I like to listen to who are from over there, and to hear them talk about their queen, how thankful they were that God had given them this queen. And again, that's foreign talk to us, but we need to try to wrap our heads Around this, to really grasp this psalm. The psalmist ends with verses 16 to 17. It says, In place of your fathers shall be your sons. You will make them princes in all the earth. I will cause your name to be remembered in all generations. Therefore, nations will praise you forever and ever. The writer switches back after talking to the queen, starts talking about the king again, and promises. An eternal reign for his line. That forever his kids and their kids will sit on the throne. And actually, all of the earth are going to worship them and praise them. And that his name will be remembered forever. This really is the goal of all kings. This really is the goal of all kingdoms. They want it to go on forever and ever and ever. They want it to be known that their reign was great. That their name is great. And they want it to be known all the things that they accomplished. They want statues of themselves. They want their names written in books. They want it taught in classrooms. This is what all kings and all kingdoms look for. Yet, when we look around, this absolutely has never happened. Ever. Every single kingdom has fallen. Every single great nation seems to fall you say well not ours well not yet but time i'm sure will tell that at some point america will be history it'll just be a part of history books because that's just how it goes kingdoms rise and kingdoms fall and so we have this beautiful psalm here but it kind of leaves us saying this isn't true It's a beautiful thing, but it's kind of like me again going to the movies and watching some movie with my wife that she forces me to watch that I don't want to watch. And in the end, what happens? Oh, they're together, and they love each other forever. And then we fight on the way home, right, and think, why can't our life be like that? Because it's fake, right? Because it's fake. It's not real. And that's kind of how we leave At the end of this psalm, wondering, will this actually happen? Is this just a story? Or is this prophecy? Is this something that we should look forward to? Or is it just something that we should read just for personal enjoyment and wonder? And then move on. And so that's kind of the question that we're left with today. How do we look at this psalm? What is this psalm for us? But once again, the Bible does a great job of interpreting itself. And I'd encourage you that whenever you're struggling to interpret a passage of Scripture, look to Scripture to interpret that passage. Because this psalm is quoted in the New Testament. It's quoted in Hebrews chapter 1, verses 8 through 9. And this is an important passage of Scripture. In fact, Hebrews is a very important book of the Bible. I hope one day to get to preach through it. I haven't had that opportunity yet. But it's quoted in Hebrews chapter 1, verses 8 through 9. It says, But of the Son, he says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. Now, this is important because in the book of Hebrews, the case that the author of Hebrews is trying to make is he's trying to prove and show us That Jesus is the king and the priest that reigns forever. That's the point of Hebrews. Trying to show the people, you no longer need a high priest. Jesus is your high priest. That, That is gone. Jesus has come and he's fulfilled every jot, every tittle of the Old Testament. And he is now the one that we go to. He made the sacrifice once and for all. And he reigns on the throne at the right hand of the Father forever. That is the whole purpose of Hebrews. That's what he's trying to get across to this church. And so when you get to like Hebrews chapter 12, he's saying, therefore, since Jesus is this king who is on the throne, since he is the priest who reigns forever, strengthen up your weak knees. Go and run the race. Persevere. Do the work that God has called you to do. Be faithful. This is what he writes in Hebrews. And how does he cement this? One of the places that he goes is the Psalm 45, our psalm today. A royal, kingly marriage. A a psalm of the marriage of the king and a foreign bride. And the way that the author of Hebrews interprets Psalm 45 is that Jesus is the king. That this psalm is all about Jesus. Jesus. And so when you say, well, Pastor Tim, you read Psalm 45, and then you said it was about Jesus. Where in the world did you get that? This is where. In Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 8 through 9. Prove that this is a messianic psalm. But it's not one that we continue to wait for. It's one that has been completely fulfilled. And so when we look at this psalm in light of Jesus, and in his life, we see that in verse 6 and 17 of Psalm 45, that Jesus' throne is established forever. His reign is for always. Uh, we don't wait for his children to reign. We're not waiting for him to pass it on. Oh, no. He sits on the throne forever and ever and ever. We never sit and mourn. We never sit and wail saying, what do we do now? Our king has been defeated. What do we do now? We just buried our king and he has no children. We don't wonder this because our king Jesus does reign Forever in verses 3 through 4. Jesus, we know, has all glory. He has all majesty. This is what the psalmist speaks about in this psalm, in talking about the beauty of the king and the uprightness of the king. Jesus is the defender of truth and righteousness, as it says in verse 4 and in verse 7. All kings we've ever seen, sin starts to creep in. And all of a sudden, their battles are not perfect and holy anymore. We can see this with Israel, right? We can see it all through their time. At times they went into battle just how they were supposed to, and they won, and it was for the right cause. But at other times, their hearts were corrupted, right? Even even the people that God chose, the the kings that God had put in place, sin still corrupted their heart. They still fell short all the time. Yet in Jesus, we do not have that. He is always the defender of truth, the defender of righteousness. And in verse 6, when it says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever, it continues and says, The scepter of your kingdom is a scepter of uprightness. Jesus' kingdom is about righteousness. It's about equitability. He's a lover of us, as we'll see in a moment. And it's interesting because this king marries a foreign bride. Why would the writer write in that way? Now, again, you might say, well, because he's talking about Solomon marrying this Egyptian woman. And you might be exactly correct. But in Scripture, we see this talk of a a bride very, very often. And if Jesus is the king, then the question remains, well, who is the bride then that is being talked about here? I hope that you know this answer, but we'll cover it just in case. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 25 to 32, which we studied at depth recently. says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies, He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother, hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. Again, trying to have Scripture interpret Scripture, we ask this question, who then is the bride in this? If Jesus is the king, who is the queen? Well, I think scripture is pretty obvious that the bride of Christ is the church. We, the church, we who've been saved by his grace, we pictured here are this, we are this bride. Just like the bride in Psalm 45, who must turn from her father, must turn from her ways, we too must do the same thing. We are of foreign blood. We are not of the same blood of, of Christ. We are foreign. We serve our own master, Satan. We are rebellious and, and sinful. And so we must turn from that and, and go to Christ. We must forsake all of that and bow our knees to our Lord. So that's why we see in like Acts chapter 3, verse 17 to 21, as Peter is talking. He says, and now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance as did also your rulers. But what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets that this Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. So then what's the answer? Repent, therefore, and turn back that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all the things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. So just like this bride that we see in Psalm 45, who must turn from her old ways and bow on her knees to her king, this we do too. The work of Jesus in our life being poured out on us by his grace enables us to see our sin, able, enables us to see our failures and our faults. And so what do we do? We, we then fall before our king, Jesus. And it's amazing to think that just like in this psalm, Jesus too takes amongst himself a foreign bride. One completely stained with sin. One completely found in the lostness of this world. But what does Jesus do for us? The same thing this king does for this bride. It's not by accident that it talks about how this bride gets dressed. All glories is the princess in her chamber with robes interwoven with gold and many colored robes she is led to the king with her virgin companions following behind her. Who gave the queen these robes? Who paid for this? The king. She didn't. She's not even of this land. She comes into this foreign land looking, if it's, if it's what they say, Solomon and Egypt. She's looking like an Egyptian. But that's foreign land. She needs to be an Israelite. She needs to be one of God's chosen. Well, how is she going to do that? She can't do it on her own. But the king and his grace... The king and his love, the king and the desire that he has for his queen gives her everything she needs, absolutely everything, so that she then can come into his chamber acceptable, accepted, and pure. This is the same picture that we have for us as sinners. We come before our king, dirty, distraught. Filled with guilt and filled with shame. Not knowing what to do. Because we look to Jesus and we look to the law that we've been given. And we say, I cannot fulfill this. I cannot do this. I want to be yours. But what do I do? And Just like this king, Jesus tells us, I've done it for you. And what you can't do. I have done for you. And so now, we have been given righteousness. We have been given holiness by grace through faith. As we fall before our king and we bow on our knee and we say, I trust in you, he says, then all of this is yours. I came to die for sinners. You are a sinner. But now, this kingdom is yours with me forever. And so just like verse 15, we, like this queen, get to go to our king with joy and gladness. When we walk into this room, I, tell, I say it almost every week, we all walk into this room every week different. Some a good week, some a bad week, some feeling good about themselves, some feeling horrible about themselves. Some having a difficult time this week with whatever it might be. Some of you just skated through this week and you would say, this was a great week. We do. Some of you walk in here not knowing Christ. Yet We all need to be gathering together, understanding that as believers, if we've been saved by God's grace, when we walk into these rooms, regardless of what we've experienced this week, we walk in here together to worship him in joy and gladness. Knowing that even in the difficulties of this life, our God is still a good God. You say, well, how can that be? If I'm struggling so much in life. How can it be that he's a good God? I'll say it this way. He has cleansed you. He has cleansed you. He has saved you. And oh yes, there's still difficulties in this life, but we know again and again, scripture tells us that he uses those difficulties in our life. What? To draw us closer to him. To understand him more. So he's even took our suffering and he's turned it for our good. Something this world cannot do. He has done this for us. And so today as we read Psalm 45, we have the privilege of reading it. We have the privilege of singing it. Knowing that our King has come. That he has made us holy. That he has made us righteous. That he has took us in as his own. And that he loves us with a love that is everlasting. Some of you maybe have faced relationships where the person looked you straight in the eye and they said, I will love you forever. And where are they now? They're gone. They don't love you anymore and you probably don't love them anymore. But yet with God, with Jesus, we don't have that. He looks you in the eye and he says, I love you with an everlasting love. that cannot be shook. And he says it in truth and in sincerity. And so we now can sing this psalm. We can read this psalm. And we can be like the writer in verse one. I told you, I'm not very poetic. This kind of stuff is difficult for me. But thinking about the things that God has done for me, that He has married me to Himself, that He has made me righteous and holy, and He has cleansed me and purified me so that I can be with Him, He has done all of that then I should be able to say what the writer says in the first verse. My heart overflows with a pleasing theme. I address my verses to the king. My tongue is like the pen of a ready scribe. The thought that Jesus himself desires me is astonishing. Some of you have been married for many years. Many years. You could look at your spouse right now as they sit next to you. You could think, we've been married a long time. But I dare say, there are still times in your marriage where you would look at each other and say, Do you even like me? Do you even love me? And you're not necessarily questioning it because you're mad at them. You know about you. And you know all your faults, and you know all your failures, and you're looking at them and you're thinking, is there really any way that you, that you still love me? It's hard for us to imagine, isn't it? It's hard for us to even grasp that somebody else might love us like that. But church, that is who our king is. Your king loves you. Despite all of your faults, despite all of your difficulties, despite how often you don't do the things he tells you to do. He loves you. He's poured his grace out upon you. He's taken you into his family. And the Bible tells us, he desires you. The King of kings and the Lord of lords, the creator of the heavens and the earth, the one through all things were created. Listen, desires you. What a thought. What a truth. And so this week, when Satan is trying to push you down and saying, who are you? Look at you. Look at what a mess you are. Look at, what a, look at what a wreck you are. Your response can be right straight from this psalm. Satan, you are correct. Yet, in all those things, the king himself desires me. And he has made me holy. He has made me righteous. Even in my imperfection, he calls me his own. What a psalm. What a message. What a God we serve. What glorious truth and news to know that we get to be a part of his family forever, forever, and ever. Let's bow together and let's pray this morning. God, this morning we thank you for the truth of your word. And God, each week we always end service the same way of singing a psalm and singing a song and trying to respond to the word of God. And so, God, I ask that you would help us to do that this morning to respond to your word, the truths that we see in it. God, that we do have a king whose throne will last forever. Nowhere in the history books will it ever be able to say, and then God was defeated. Oh God, there's people who try to claim that today. God, we know that it is not true. And as your people, as your bride, we long for the day of what Revelations promises us when we get to eat with you after the marriage of the lamb and the bride and the yeah the bride and so god we of course pray for that day to come soon but god in the meantime we want to be faithful to you we want to be faithful to our king and to our and to our groom and so god help us not to turn to others help us to stay focused Help us to be centered on the love that you show us each and every day, the hope and the peace that you have given us in Jesus and through Jesus over and over and over again. God, I pray for those people here this morning who are struggling. Maybe it's they have sin in their life. God, I pray that they would be willing to confess that sin to you and then to start doing that work of rooting that sin out of their life. I pray for those people here this morning who are Christians, But Yet so often they doubt it because of the ugliness of their sin. God, remind them over and over again of what you have done for them. God, not so that they will be comfortable in their sin, no. That they will see that they are not separated from you because of their works. but That they are connected to you because of the work that you have done for them. Remind them of that great truth. Day in and day out. God, this morning I know there are people here who are not part of your family. God, I pray that they would see this morning how good you are, God, that they would be willing to trust in Jesus for the forgiveness of their sins, to be, to be cleansed by his blood, to be made white as, white as snow by faith, trusting in Jesus and what he has said he has done and continues to do. God, I know that if they would do that, they would trust in that, then this Psalm is for them as well that they now have been made spotless, that they are worthy then to be called the bride of Christ. God, thank you for loving us. Thank you for caring for us. God, as we sing this song now, I pray that it would be worship in our hearts to you, our King who loves us. We pray all this in his name.